Exocast. 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 Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode of Exocast, we're going to cover a few of this month's most interesting papers, and we're each focusing on a different interesting development that caught our eye over the past four weeks. So who's up first? Do you want to go, Hannah? I know we've had some interesting developments with James Webb, and you're, you're going to tell us a little bit more about James Webb, so, so it's topical. Yeah, why don't, why don't I take the, the lead on this one? So this month I decided to go for a, a paper that is titled Analysis of a JWST Near-Spec Lab Time Series, colon, Characterizing Systematics, Recovering Exoplanet Transit Spectroscopy and Constraining a Noise Floor. So this is a paper that was led by Zafar Rustamakolov. Hopefully, Zafar, I said your surname right. Um, and this was really looking at lab-based data of a particular instrument that's on the James Webb Space Telescope. And, and a reason that's really important right now for this is that we're starting to get ready to analyse the data that will come down for science operations from James Webb, which will be happening in the late summer. So time is rapidly upon us for that, which is kind of scary, but really exciting at the same time. So yeah. uh, Zafar and the team took some data that's been measured on the ground before James Webb launched. It was measured in the lab during uh, some cryogenic testing. And they used this kind of time to look at what techniques and requirements were needed to get all of the information out of that time series data. It's a very technical and, and highly specific paper that I'm actually not going to go into the nitty gritty of here, but I really wanted to bring it up on Exocast because I really want to highlight some of the steps that are needed to get to the results that we often jump to on this show. And we often jump to in the press as well. When we're looking at exoplanet atmospheres, we say, oh, we discovered water vapor in the atmosphere at this much and it tells us this thing. But actually, yeah. there's a whole load of stuff. <laughs> that has to go on with the data before that. And Hugh's talked about it a little bit when it comes to the discoveries, you know, all of the things that we have to check and go through. So this paper really kind of highlights some of the things that we're going to be dealing with with web and the best ways that we can approach the data so that we can get those results that we're really excited about and, and announcing on the show. So in the paper, they take this lab data and this lab data, as I said, was recorded during cryo vacuum testing. And that testing used a tungsten lamp. So a standard lamp that you, you would expect to kind of see. Um, and it was designed to replicate the PSF. So that is the point spread function, PSF, point spread function, or simply how spread out a point of light would look on an image. So how blurry would a point of light look on a, a picture that you took? And... It was designed to, to replicate the point spread function of the light that Webb's going to record. So in the lab, they took 12,000 images over the course of three hours of this lamp to see what the detector did. So they, they don't have like the 6.5 meter mirror of James Webb up in the lab. It's just no, the instruments don't. and they're feeding the light into the instrument. Exactly. Okay. So it's just the instrument itself. So this is the near spec instrument, the... Uh, near-infrared spectrometer instrument, and they're using a, something called the prism mode. And this is shining the light through a prism, which spreads the light out in all, to, all of its wonderful colours 
Uh, this is in the infrared, of course, so we not colours that we can see, not a nice spread of colours that we can see, but it spreads the light out as a function of wavelength, and then the detector records that information. So the test actually allows them to include the noise performance of that instrument, so the noise performance of the detector itself, and how sensitive each pixel is relative to its neighboring pixels. So we've seen with previous telescopes like the Spitzer Space Telescope that each pixel reacts to light in a slightly different way. And when we're trying to measure something as precise as the atmosphere of a distant exoplanet as it passes in front of a star, we need those to be uh, as well characterized. We need to understand exactly how each pixel is responding to the light that's coming in from that star as much as possible. So this test really allowed that understanding of this detector in that way. So shining that light on it uh, and spreading that light out in, by this prism. So getting the spectrum of this lamp and trying to understand how each pixel in the detector reacted to that light over the course of these three hours. So in addition to all of this, this is just kind of the base test data that they had. Zafar and, and their team actually injected a signal that we might expect from a planetary transit with, with an atmospheric signal in there as well. So they, they took the test data, which is just looking at a lamp and how the detector reacts over time, and they injected the expected kind of precision, the expected... Um, change in the light that we would expect for a planet passing in front of its star and the atmosphere absorbing some of that light into the data to see if they could recover that again from all of their corrections and all of their tests. So the reduction starts with this 2D image, so just a picture where the light is spread out in the x direction, so it's spread out sideways which corresponds to the wavelength of that light and then in the y direction corresponds to how blurry that, that light looks, so that point spread function, that PSF. And then they evaluate over the course of time how that spectrum moves on the detector. So the detector's not, not moving, but the light itself, the path that the light's going down, it induces some effects. Um, and this is known as the drift. And the 2D image drifted in both the X and the Y direction. So it drifts in both the, the wavelength direction and in the vertical direction. And one of the really key things here is they found that the drift in the test images, the, 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 this test data that they were using, was actually four times worse than what James Webb will ever do. And they were able to correct it really nicely. So we're able to correct something that is just so much worse than what James Webb's actually going to get. So we're pretty hopeful for the data that's going to come down, which is really, really nice. So good news from the start there. Um, they also actually found that the flux, the, the light from that, that, lamp decreased with time but that this was actually due to the instability of the the instability of that light source and we don't expect that to be happening in our stars so that's another good thing so in addition to the positional effects the other major thing that they found with this data is something called one over f noise where f here is frequency so this is an inverse frequency noise which is induced in the data and i'm going to explain a little bit i'm going to try to explain a little bit about what this means so this one over f noise is the speed at which each of the pixels on that detector is read out and the difference between when they're read out, introduces electrical noise into the system. So think of the detector as a big grid, and we're going to break it down into squares of rows and columns. You can look at the first row and the first column box, and then you're going to look at the next row, next column. 
So we're going along the columns. We're looking at the first row along all of the columns. We're looking from one box to the next box along our row. And then when we get to the end of our row, we're going to come back and look at the first column, second row box. And we're going to do that in sequence until we get to right at the end where we're looking at our final row and our final column box. It's taken us time to do that. So it's taken us time to look at each of these boxes. And what's actually happening on our detector is each of those corresponds to a pixel. And the detector reads out that pixel and then it goes over and it reads out the next one. And then it goes over and it reads out the next one. And then it loops back and it goes over and it reads out the next row. And this time that it takes is fractions of a second. These are like nanoseconds or less. But that introduces this um, frequency into the data that is seen because what we're measuring for exoplanet atmospheres is so tiny that this noise becomes dominant. So the frequency isn't like the light frequency, as in the wavelength. It's the frequency of the time that's, you know, the, the, exactly. the inverse of the time that's being, you know, readout time. Exactly. It's, okay. yeah, so it's the inverse. So one over F, so the inverse frequency, the time that it takes for it to go from one to the next pixel when it's reading it out electrically. Seems like if you're saying inverse frequency, why don't you just say time? <laughs> I know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that it's is... called one over F noise, which is, you know, it's just what it's called, but it is essentially that timestamp. Yeah. It is knowing what that timestamp is between looking at this box, then looking at the next box and looking at the next box until you've read, you've looked at the whole image. And then it's like having to remember what the whole image looks like from having looked at each box in turn, right? So we, we end up with this kind of information on top of there that we need to get rid of. So this can be actually corrected by knowing that time that it takes between reading them. So if we know the frequency, then we can correct for this. And you can also approximate it over columns. So you can say, oh, well, there's this much information in here. We can subtract the average of this and get, get some, some information back. Um, so what they actually found, the, the, the team looking at this data basically turned around and said, this is the biggest issue that we're going to have to deal with because the signal of this, this time noise induced in the electrical reading of the detector itself actually is bigger than any atmospheric signal that we're likely to detect. So you have to remove this. You have to take this into account so that we can really understand it and see what we're, we're measuring there. So the biggest thing is this is something we need to care about. So let's start caring about so, it. So Hannah, this was clearly like, you know, a fundamental part of the, the methodology. So I guess this was known prior to, you know, the commissioning of the telescope. Yeah, 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 it was it was fully expected. And actually, this is only going to affect the near-infrared instruments. So there are three near-infrared instruments on James Webb and one mid-infrared instrument on James Webb. The mid-infrared instrument, it, the detector is actually a different kind of detector, and it doesn't have this kind of noise in it. So it's an, an effect that we will have to deal with with three out of the four instruments on James Webb. And that, that was known, but the extent of it and, and how to deal with it is something that is still... Um, being being analysed, and that's something that really kind of came from this paper that Zafar has led. Then finally, one of the things that they were testing is the how well we might expect Webb to do on exoplanet time series data. And one of the conditions for this is something known as a noise floor. Um, and this actually defines 
how exact the detector is replicating the reality. So often this is actually measured in parts per million, so it's a really tiny effect, um, but the atmospheric signals that we're looking at are in their parts per million sometimes. So it's an important thing to understand. And in the cases for, for this analysis with the near-spec instrument with the prism mode, they were able to show that the noise floor of the detector, so the best signal that we can possibly get of anything from Webb, in this instrument mode is less than 14 parts per million. So that's a really good news for things like uh, the TRAPPIST-1 planetary system, the atmospheres, measuring the atmospheres of those, or um, small Neptune-sized worlds around, around slightly larger stars. It actually just sets the limit on what we can do, what we can measure. So that limit is, is 14 parts per million. We expected it to be around 20. So that's really good news for us. Um, that, that's, a, that's a decent value. Hopefully it can be pushed down even further as we learn more about these instruments. And perhaps even on sky, when we don't have this four times the drift that's been seen in the test data, you know, web's actually going to be better than anything that this is, is showing us. We, we hopefully can push that even lower. And that's going to be really good for us detecting atmospheres. But really, currently, this is the, the closest analog to web science data that is available to the public, um, especially in time series data. So we expect the steps that are outlined in this paper um, are going to be the ones that we need to apply to the real data when it starts coming down in the late summer. So if you do plan to analyze James Webb time series data, then this is really where you need to start. This is, this is the paper that you read. This is the data set that, set that you test all your codes on. Um, so it's it's really exciting to start seeing this real kind of James Webb's real everybody. It's happening. Yeah. We just got to get on board and and get ready for the tidal wave of data coming down. And it's doing better than we expected, which is yeah. just fantastic. It's doing better than we expected. Yeah, that's one thing I was going to say is that the, it looks like from the the telescope alignment image that they're getting better like better PSF than they expected. So that there's less of a spread than they expected. They're, you know, yeah. they're better aligned than they hoped. So if all of these things, you know, propagate through, that means maybe we can push from 14 to 10 and then maybe we can push from, you know, a certain detection of water vapor that we expect and we could do maybe twice as well. You know, it'd be really cool. Yeah. One of the really funny things when when that image came out of everything aligned, um, one of the co-authors on this study, David Singh, actually said, oh, well, the only thing that's going to disrupt our transit observations if, is if a supernova goes off in a distant galaxy that happens to be in our image because that will, James Webb's so sensitive that it will pick up the change in light from a supernova going off thousands, <laughs> millions, billions of light years away. So it, it is amazing what, what we're going to be able to measure with this instrument. So this yeah. is just the first in, in many different things we'll see from Webb. Why don't I pass it on to Andrew? Why don't you, you tell us a little bit about what you have been reading this month? Well, uh, a very different uh, type of paper um, fell onto uh, my eyes. That's not a good. That's not a good phrase. Let's try that again. Fell <laughs> <laughs> onto my desk. I didn't I know like where I was it. Going fell onto that. your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> my eyes uh, fell fell onto a very interesting paper. No, that doesn't work either. Um, sorry. I should say in astrobiology this month, uh, I did spy uh, a very interesting paper going from space-based observations to very, very much an Earth history uh, kind of approach, but one that I think um, 
I really liked because I thought it was quite a novel hypothesis, very cohesive, and, and, and it's in nature comms, so it's nice and short and punchy, and it was really succinct and, and, and tidy, um, and I liked that. It told a, an interesting narrative, very um, perhaps unique and novel hypothesis that I wanted to share. So the paper is called Oxidative Metabolisms Catalyzed Earth's Oxygenation. Um, and as I mentioned, it appears in Nature Comms this month and comes from the desk of Hai Shaoshang and his colleagues at MIT. Um, so one of the enduring questions about the uh, oxygenation of the Earth is one of timing. The narrative goes that oxygenic photosynthesizing bacteria evolved in the oceans during the late Archean or maybe the early Proterozoic Eon by 2.5 billion years ago, and that sometime later, around 2.3 billion years ago, there is a recorded in various isotopic and geochemical proxies evidence for a relatively rapid rise in atmospheric oxygen up to around 10% of the atmosphere, or perhaps even higher, and this is known rather grandiosely as the Great Oxygenation Event, or the GOE. Um, now, the issue has always been the, the time lag between the possible evolution of organisms that produce that oxygen and the you know, significant oxygenation of the atmosphere, which might have been you know, maybe half a billion years, which is a long time geologically and, and certainly biologically. Um, so why was there this delay? This is something that's been debated for a, a, long, a long time now, um, and this is just another you know, take on, the, on that approach. But the theory is once you know, there's an evolutionary advantage for some oxygen-producing organisms, um, it follows that then oxygen should have begun to secularly increase as they proliferated through the Proterozoic Oceans, but maybe that wasn't the case. I mean, we do have some evidence for whiffs uh, of oxygen prior to the GOE, uh, which suggests that... Is that a technical term? It is a technical term. You'll find that <laughs> actually included. Um, it doesn't specify the maximum or minimum boundaries for what a whiff is, but I think it's you know rather enigmatic. It, it, it's a small amount, uh, a puff, a whisper, if you will, of oxygen into the atmosphere. <laughs> that could be because these you know early oxygenic communities um, might have been living in refugia that are isolated from the globally anoxic reducing environment. Uh, and that resulted in, uh, you know, maybe just these whiffs of oxygen coming from shallow sea sediments, perhaps. Um, and these would then be photochemically destroyed or, or mopped up by the vast tracts of exposed reduced materials that were still on the continents at the time. Um, so the theory is after some crucial redox tipping point was reached, where all of that you know, oxidate, uh, reduced material was, was oxidized, over time by those, those whiffs, you know, they would also produce those banded iron formations that I've talked about before as a process, uh, as a byproduct of this. And then eventually, once there were there's some, some, some tipping point was crossed, oxygen could accumulate more rapidly in the atmosphere, um, and then you would get this, this sharp rise. So one of the mechanisms that are actually responsible for allowing it to accumulate in, in, in appreciable amounts is the, the burial and the eventual subduction into the mantle of organic carbon. So in this case, the material is a product of oxygenic photosynthesis. So if the organism has taken CO2 and it's used energy from the sun to split that CO2 uh, and to make uh, energy um, that way. And the burial then prevents that liberated O2 molecule from recombining with the carbon where it was originally split from. So you result in more oxygen in the atmosphere, more reduced carbon in the, in the mantle where it's kind of protected from the oxygen cycle, if you will. Prevents it from being remineralized, it locks it away in the interior of the earth before it's eventually re-emitted via volcanic sources hundreds of millions of years later. But there is a bit of a, a complex um, conundrum in there, in that the theory goes that as the 
as the environment became oxidized, the process became inhibited because that organic uh, carbon that had been made by those organisms does get degraded, gets further oxidized in the water column or in the sediments by other organisms that might be you know, wanting to use that energy. Um, and therefore you get this, this bottleneck perhaps where you get more oxygen produ being produced, but that actually prevents a lot of that ox the, the carbon from being buried, which then mm. disconnects that cycle somewhat. So this paper presents a, a very interesting additional twist to the tale that might explain both the lag and the carbon burial conundrum. And that twist is called POOM, which is just fantastic. It might be the most fun to say science acronym I've uh, mm. encountered recently. Yes, yeah, so POOM, P-O-O-M. Mm. Um, it stands for partially oxidized organic matter. And the theory is that this might play a key role in the uh, early oxygen cycle that we haven't appreciated just yet. So Shang and his colleagues suggest that some of the earliest oxidative metabolism, so these are ones that actually use O2, they consume O2 when they're processing the organic um, uh, carbon, these produce poom. Uh, the poom results from the incomplete degradation of the organic material, producing only partially oxidized intermediate stage products. These are things like carboxyls and hydroxyls. Uh, and these are actually much more easily immobilized, so they can't be processed that well uh, when you get them into sedimentary rocks. They can be protected by those minerals then from further oxidation, further degradation, by limiting enzymatic access to that organic matter. So you're kind of protecting it. It's partially oxidized, and, but you're keeping a lot of that oxidative power uh, you know, and, and keeping that oxygen separate from the carbon, therefore keeping the, the, the kind of carbon cycle connected. I mean, you talk about organisms that consume oxygen. I mean, do we produce poom? <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. I'd probably probably somewhere along the line, right, as a intermediate process. But I'm sure that if there are biochemists listening to this, they'd be shouting at me for why that seems unlikely. Um, so, when it comes to the the breakdown of this paper, I've while it was almost equally split between geochemistry and biology, I've written 95% about the geochemistry and 5% about the biology. Because <laughs> while I am convinced it's, it's, it's good, uh, I'm not a biologist and I'd need uh, a little sure. bit more biology understanding to really get into the, the phylogenetics, for example, the horizontal mm. gene transfer analysis that they did. Uh, but it is all in there. So go, go and check that out if you're on the biology side of things. Um, but I will get to that in a second. Um, as to whether we produce poom or not, I, I don't. I don't really know. Um, I hope we do because it. I don't know. It just it <laughs> sounds cool. <laughs> sounds cool. Okay, so the theory is we've got this poom. It's all, uh, you know it's partially oxidized, um, and that just allows for better, um, more carbon to be buried, more carbon to be subducted into the mantle, and that liberated oxygen to remain separate and allow it to accumulate in the atmosphere. Um, this also answers another question about the oxygen cycle, where there was this theory that, or there was this um, dichotomy between. Was it the burial efficiency or an increase in primary productivity that resulted in more carbon being buried at this time? And that's something that hasn't been cleared up, but this would suggest that it's actually the burial efficiency that's increased as opposed to the primary productivity, for example. So overall, I'd say this sounds like a really neat story, um, but it does hinge on there being a group of poom-producing organisms uh, extant or around the GOE in order to, to corroborate this, right? It's a, great, it's a great theory, but you have to have an organism or a gene that's responsible for actually making this, this, uh, this molecule. So is there, was there one around? Well, I guess predictably, given that I'm talking about the paper uh, and it wasn't published in the Journal of Negative Results, they do indeed find a, a key enzyme family involved in this process. Uh, it's called Bayer Villager Monoxygenases, or BVMOs, uh, and these generate poom. Uh, they also, in the paper, present a really robust case for the 
kind of temporal consistency or at least the correlation of the global expansion of that enzyme around the same time as the GOE or just slightly before, uh, which, you know, they, they use to support their hypothesis for the, the proliferation of these kind of metabolisms. So they find that this enzyme was likely around and mm -hmm. consistently through a large amount of time over this great oxygenation event around at that time. Indeed, and not just around, but actually um, at that stage, diversifying, as they call it, and I, 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 in a genetic sense, uh, adding genetic complexity to that particular enzyme family. Um, so the theory is that through horizontal genes transfer that this um, particular enzyme was incorporated in a number of different families, but I think they only tested one, this BVMOs, and that's one of the weaknesses that they do identify. They use a molecular clock analysis and a phylogenetic analysis, which that can be weak if you're just using a single gene family. So the fact that it adapted to its environment in lots of different parts of the planet, therefore allowing it to be the dominant source function for this... this... Well, whether it was dominant or not, again, I'm not, I'm not too sure. The, the, dominant the... enough yes. to allow for this delay, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. Yeah, uh, as to the, you know the actual absolute proliferation of these organisms that can be tricky, especially when you're just looking at a particular enzyme using a phylogenetic or molecular clock analysis, which can be, you're not really looking at the, the community of organisms, just rather the propensity for that particular uh, gene to be passed, uh, to be passed on. Um, so again, from the biology point of view, not my strength, but definitely do go and check that out. I think it was a, from what I could understand <laughs> of it anyway, a, a robust analysis that at least, presented the correlation if not you know the causation there there was definitely mm. diversification around the same the same time and and, and definitely temporal uh, causality uh, temporal correlation there at least so in summary i felt you know a, a great paper i enjoyed reading it um and i think it really illustrated the the the, the transformative power of the co-evolution of life uh, and the planet these might have been you know tiny organisms you know almost certainly tiny organisms physically but you know maybe a small community of tiny organisms that made a really you know completely um, significant contribution to the geochemistry of the of the surface and atmosphere and interior of the planet. Um, you know, I think they've they provided a really interesting argument here um, that, you know, perhaps counterintuitively suggests that oxygen consuming metabolisms uh, being uh, emerging actually resulted in more oxygen accumulating through this kind of protection of the carbon burial uh, process. So I think, as they mentioned, and, and as I picked up as well, you'd probably need a little bit more in situ and lab work to, to, to figure out some of the, um, the geochemical processes, specifically the reaction rates of, of, of that organic matter and, and, and the poom um, in the sediments, for example. And as we've already discussed, just looking at a single uh, you know, kind of gene family for this kind of molecular clock analysis does have some, does have some issues with degeneracies as well. But I think it, it just reaffirms that we should really bear in mind how complex and you know, possibly non-linear synergistic, and they actually called it in the paper, which I really liked, autocatalytic nature of these like interconnected biogeochemical cycles when you're trying to explain some aspects of the planet system, whether that's Earth or, or another planet in the solar system or an exoplanet as well. So my paper for the month. Nice. Cool. Well, moving on. Hugh, what have you got for us this month? Yeah, I guess something a little different... Once again, um, I, I, I mean, I, I've looked at three papers, which is, you know, a little bit pushing the boundary, but they are all very similar and they all draw similar conclusions. So um, I think it's OK to, to bunch them together. Listeners, I will say who did not uh, consult us first uh, before no, going off piste with this. <laughs> 
apologies. So if we're over time on this one, it's all Hugh's fault. <laughs> <laughs> hey. So these these uh, three papers are from Sam Christian, Trent Dupuy, and Ada Baymart. And they're all basically looking at not specifically exoplanets, but looking at the uh, stellar companions to planet host stars. So um, a large fraction of, of stellar systems don't just have one star like our own sun, but they're a multi-star system. So they're in binaries and ternaries and quaternaries and all of these, you know, you get, there are systems with six or seven stars in even. Um, but we don't really know how having extra stars in the system impacts planet formation. Um, whether, you know, there's more or less planets in those systems or whether there are differences because of the influence of the other stars. Um, we have found planets orbiting, you know, close in binaries. So these so-called circumbinary planets where there are two stars in the in the middle and the planets orbit both stars and the, well, the centre of mass of both stars. Uh, but actually most binaries tend to be on much wider orbits. And in these cases, there's no reason why planet formation couldn't form around both of these stars. So you couldn't have transiting or non-transiting planets around two stars in a, in a, in a binary system or, you know, ternary system even. Uh, and indeed, we have a lot of examples of this. Uh, even since the early days of planet formation or planet detection, you know, we've been able to detect planets in binary star systems where the, these two components are pretty far apart. So one system that springs to mind is the XO2 system, where there are two components in that system, north and south, and both components have two giant planets each, <laughs> which is an interesting one. Um, so, so the, this kind of poses an interesting question: Is the bin is the population of binary companions to exoplanet host stars normal? You know, is it, is, does it resemble the the population of you know binary companions to normal stars? Mm. Um, and to do to do this kind of like check this comparison, you basically need two sets of data: you need one sample of exoplanets, and you need one sample of binary stars around um, exoplanet hosts. So we have. A lot of planets now, so Kepler and especially TESS have given us some amazing samples of, of transiting exoplanets. Both um, have now detected more than 5,000 candidates um, for each, and TESS is obviously still giving us more. Uh, finding binaries is a different story, so we have a lot of star catalogues, um, but it's not immediately obvious when you find two stars very close together that they're in a binary system, that they're orbiting each other effectively, rather than serendipitously being close on the sky, but very you know distant in, in 3D space. Um, so you need um, to really be following the movement of these stars over many, many years to be able to get um, a parallax, so a distance to the star or to both of the stars, so you can see in three dimensions whether they're close together, and, a, and a, the velocity or the proper motion of these each of the stars, which tells you something about whether they're moving together in space. Um, and thankfully, we now have some amazing high-quality data to test exactly that. So we have the Gaia mission, uh, which has found tens of thousands of these kind of wide binaries. Even, you know, very, very, you know, far fainter stars orbiting very bright stars, where ordinarily from the ground you wouldn't be able to tell if there was a star there. Because Gaia's in space and it's got a big mirror and it's doing amazing measurements, it's able to find these kind of very faint, very um, much more uh, low-mass uh, binary companions well one of the great things about Gaia is that it's not not only that it's in space I mean the mirror is actually fairly fairly small for that but it's the fact that it's looking at the whole sky and it's been doing that and will be doing that for many 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 years 
So it's building up an image of these stars and how they move as a function of time. It's not just about how their light changes as a function of time, which we see a lot from Tess and Kepler. It's how they physically move relative to each other. So Gaia's been giving us a really amazing catalogue of where the stars are and where they're going. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something when you hear it talks about Gaia data, they talk about six dimensional data, which I'm, I'm like, what, the, what does that mean? We only have three <laughs> dimensions, right? But it's because Gaia, as you say, gives you orbital motion. So you get the velocities of these um, stars in 3D, as well as the distance, as well as their position on the sky. Um, so, and, and that's really important, actually, in this case, because once you have relative velocities for the two stars in the binary system, we can work out their orbit. So even if, you know, we're talking about binary star systems that might have orbital periods of tens of thousands of years, if you have the, velo the instantaneous velocity of both stars, you can actually construct the orbit just from that at least, you know, have some good idea about what the orbit is doing. Um, so that's really key in this case. Uh, and, and so we, not just Gaia, we also have ground-based campaigns on planet host stars. So after the Kepler um, discovered all of its planets, there's been a lot ongoing campaign with Keck, which is a 10-meter telescope in, in uh, Hawaii, specifically looking at these host stars um, for over five years to look for binaries and the motion of those binaries to get the same kind of information about relative velocity and, and the binary orbits. Um, so coming to the three papers, um, which all kind of looked at these different kind of samples, but the same kind of effects. Um, so in the case of the Trent Dupay's work, he focused on 45 Kepler planet hosts um, that had binaries observed by Keck. Um, in the case of Sam Christian, he was looking at uh, test candidates um, that are, you know, he vetted them, so made sure that the, the test candidates were very likely planets, not false positives. And he was looking at Gaia DR2 data, which, which had found binaries around 67 of these. Uh, and for Ada Bermart, um, what she did, she found 170 test planet hosts that had multi that were in multi-star systems. Um, so in all three papers, uh, which have kind of very different samples, they basically found the same thing, and that is that these stars that have short period transiting planets tend to have binaries that are aligned with the planetary orbits. And this is kind of weird. So, so the, the binary systems, you know, they're, they're on hundreds of AU. They're very far from their stars. And the planets are on orbits, you know, typically less than 0.2 AU. They're very close to their stars. So the fact that the, the planetary orbits of these um, small test transiting planets and small Kepler transiting planets kind of match um, the, the orbits of the stars is really unexpected. You know, I think it, it, it's very, very weird. I didn't, I didn't kind of appreciate why. It suggests like a serendipitous formation, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. So, so the, these planets form from protoplanetary disks, which are, extend quite a long way often. And either the protoplanetary disk forms in a way which is aligned with the binary star, which makes sense because of the motion, maybe the angular momentum that was in that gas cloud when both stars formed. Yeah. Or what happens is the, the gravitational pull of the binary actually tilts the disk of the, mm -hmm. the planet forming disk around the, the, main, the, you know, the primary star. And this tilt brings it into line. And we're not talking about imperfect alignment here. Typically, the, the, um, the, uh, the angles that they found was around plus or minus 30 degrees for the, um, the binary companions. And in the case of Sam Christian's paper, uh, he found that there was actually this kind of dividing line where 
binaries that were longer orbits than about 700 AU, um, they didn't tend to have this effect so strongly. And then binaries that were between 250 and 700 AU, so a bit closer, they had a stronger effect. So this kind of shows that, that yes, this must be a formational effect where the closer the binary, the more likely it is to, um, to change the inclination of the planets we see. So th there was a key question that kind of isn't answered by any of these three papers, and that's whether the planetary occurrence rate is different in these systems. Uh, but that's a substantially more difficult question than just comparing a sample of, of planets with binaries to a sample of binaries that don't have planets. An interesting thing that, that in the most recent work from Ada Bemart was that they didn't find such strong evidence for this alignment of uh, long period binary stars with the planets. It was there, but it wasn't so strong. But what they did find was a huge difference um, for hot Jupiters. So here, where you've got a really hot giant planet orbiting the star, they found that in most cases, there wasn't this alignment. In fact, the orbits were anti-aligned. So the star was um, effectively perpendicular in its orbit to the, the, the giant planet uh, in something like 65% of, of cases. Nice. So that's, I mean, this is kind of, we've seen this already where we've seen that hot Jupiter's tend to be on, on polar orbits or even sometimes retrograde orbits by measuring the alignment with their stellar um, rotation. And so this, this, we think this is because the hot Jupiters were basically formed through some dynamical instability, often because there is a long distance uh, star in the system that does this kind of tilting of the planetary orbit. So this kind of matches with this and it tells us that actually hot Jupiters maybe look like uh, in, in a lot more it's a lot more common that they form through this dynamic instability in any case. Or at least gets disrupted by it, right? Because these hot Jupiters become hot Jupiters. They spiral inwards at some point. They migrate inwards. Maybe that's a result of this, the, this dynamical disruption from that nearby star. Yeah. I mean, if, if, they're, if they're kind of slowly moving in in terms of disk migration, then they should still be aligned with the disk, which should still it looks like, be aligned with the outer star. Yes, that's true. They should still be aligned with the absolute star, but not with the binary star companion, perhaps. Potentially not. Yeah, I'm not sure how how that works, but it looks more like it's it's a kind of dynamic like kick that the outer mm. star gives to the giant planets that, that sends them in. That kind of fits better with the, the data, I think. Nice. But I think this is one of those cool uh, insights that statistics really can give you into planetary formation. You know, one observation, one one transiting planet with a binary around that doesn't tell you anything. But when you get 150, 200, 300 planets uh, with with binaries, then that really gives you an uh, an understanding about the underlying physics that's going on in formation, which is really cool. And hopefully, we'll get even greater insights when you know Gaia continues to dump billions of incredible <laughs> new data points every few years, and and Tess gives us 20 new candidates a week. Um, so there's really, uh, I think there's more to be delved into this this kind of like um, stellar companion population for exoplanets in the future. And I think there's even more to be coming, you know, later this this year or early next year, because the Gaia is, as you say, doing a nice big data dump actually sometime in June yeah. this year. So there's going to be another massive data dump where they've actually promised even more information on binary stars. So um, hopefully we'll we'll get to be able to see more and more of these. We're getting RV orbits for binary stars rather than just... Um, the like individual observations of separate stars. So it's going to be great. 
Well, Gaia is just great, right? Often I don't feel like we we appreciate it enough. Maybe maybe you two do because you're you know in the community, <laughs> but it's not often a mission that a lot of people know. It doesn't capture the the headlines like Kepler or TESS or JWST, right? But it's so useful for these kind of these kind of studies that are so critical for the other yeah. observatories we need. We should get a, a Gaia scientist on to tell us more about it. Great idea. Yeah, that would be awesome. Hughes volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that might be a good place to wrap up our news for the month. Th at least three yeah. uh, interesting papers uh, from the various different uh, realms of exoplanet-relevant science. I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, please don't forget to look out for our other episode this month, where we'll be interviewing Dr. Meg Schwamp from Queen's University, Belfast, about her work on exoplanets, their stars, and also solar system objects. Um, please do let us know what you think about the show on Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can also find all of our previous shows. There are quite a few of them now. Quite, quite, a, quite a nice back catalogue there <laughs> if you want to binge any. Um, you can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Uh, each coffee is just $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Um, of course, a very big thank you to all of our previous donors. You can also get your hands on some sweet Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, cups, mugs, etc. over at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited gratefully uh, from our part by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you for listening and we will um, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Kelps Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, Lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Andrew Rushby, Lecturer in Astrobiology at the Birkbeck University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your donations. Find more on exocast.org.